0: Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or
1: even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Today's question asks, what is the Stockholm Syndrome? And I've also had some other questions kind of related to this, asking about whether trauma bonding is really the same thing. And this gets into kind of a controversial area, but I'll cover this. So when we see the term Stockholm Syndrome, we also see kind of other terms that seem to be related to it in some way. Right? Identification with the aggressor or oppressor, which is kind of a psychodynamic theory piece there. We see trauma bonding. I mentioned that. We see battered women's syndrome. And we see learned helplessness. So this really gets into a controversial area because Stockholm Syndrome, the idea of it, has been expanded into a lot of these other areas, so we see kind of a parallel between hostage-taking and intimate partner violence and other situations similar to that. So I'm going to look at kind of, as I mentioned, both of these different aspects, both the hostage-taking, kind of the classic Stockholm Syndrome, and how this could apply in abusive relationships. So some examples of Stockholm Syndrome. Where did we get this term from? Well, we see in 1973 there was a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, where the bank employees who were held hostage during the robbery bonded with and eventually defended their captors. There was also kind of these rumors that there was some sexual relationships and some follow-up romantic relationships that occurred. But there's really no clear evidence that this part happened. In the United States in 1974 we see a famous case with an heiress named Patty Hearst. She was kidnapped by a violent left-wing group, and eventually she joined them and committed crimes along with them. So those are kind of the early examples we see that led to Stockholm Syndrome, specifically, of course, the 1973 bank robbery is where the name came from. Now, more recently, we see the case of Elizabeth Smart, who was kidnapped and had opportunities to escape but didn't take them. But it was really more than just this with the Elizabeth Smart case that kind of drew this parallel over to Stockholm Syndrome. We see that she walked in public, she attended parties, and when she was initially approached by the police, she refused to provide them with her true identity. When it was discovered that she was Elizabeth Smart, she was the person who was kidnapped, and the police intervened, she asked what was going to happen to her captors. She asked if they were going to be in trouble and she was told by the officers that the captors would go to prison, and she started to cry and actually cried all the way to the police station. So these are kind of examples of Stockholm Syndrome, at least in theory. And the reason I say in theory is because we actually have no consistent definition of Stockholm Syndrome, and there are many researchers who believe it doesn't exist at all. So there's a lot of controversial elements when it comes to this syndrome. So what is required for somebody to have Stockholm Syndrome? i well, will get to a more detailed description later on, but just initially. What we see with Stockholm Syndrome is a positive bond with the captor, including defending or supporting the captor, preferring to remain with the captor and not go with rescuers, and having a negative view of authority, family, or friends. That's kind of the short definition of Stockholm Syndrome. Now, a kind of mystery comes into this in terms of conceptualizing it. like. Is it unconscious identification? Does it occur without the person realizing that it's occurring? Or is it a coping strategy that can be understood in terms of being adaptive? That is, it provides hope for the victim in an otherwise hopeless situation. And furthermore, as I mentioned, this has been applied to abused women who stay with violent partners, in particular when they defend the actions of those partners. Now, it's this application in particular that gets a lot of people in the mental health community upset. We see a lot of strong feelings on this point. There are those that disagree that Stockholm Syndrome is a real thing. They don't believe it's a real thing. But then to apply it to the intimate partner violence issue is really just too much for a lot of clinicians. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. The first reason would be that Stockholm Syndrome itself is not a mental disorder. We don't see convincing evidence that there's any pathological component to Stockholm Syndrome meaning it's more or less a normal reaction, the way it's conceptualized, again, as adaptive. We also see that it's not even really a syndrome, right? So a syndrome is a combination of signs or symptoms that form a distinct clinical picture. It's not that either. So it's not a syndrome, and it certainly doesn't rise to the level of a mental disorder. So if Stockholm Syndrome itself is kind of being challenged, then how can it be applied to Intimate partner violence situations. So with all this in mind, as I indicated before, I'm going to take a look at Stockholm Syndrome here and then the possible relationship as seen in the research between intimate partner violence and Stockholm Syndrome. One of the first things I think is pretty important when talking about Stockholm Syndrome is that for most people, it doesn't happen. If we look, for example, to the TWA hijacking in 1985, which has become one of the famous examples of Stockholm Syndrome, we see that One victim did display feelings of compassion for the perpetrators, but most of the hostages showed no evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. We see that the captives expressed fear that their captors would kill them, but they believed that their best chances of survival was with the law enforcement agencies. So they understood, to put it kind of simply, that the captors were bad guys and the police were good guys. And of course we would expect that to be turned around if there was Stockholm Syndrome at work. We also see information here from the FBI on this. There's a hostage barricade database system which contains over 4,700 records of hostage barricade incidents. And we see in these records that 73% of the captives showed no evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. And even among those who did show symptoms, it's not clear how many would actually qualify for Stockholm Syndrome. Now, because the vast majority of hostage barricade incidents involve intimate partners, or at least people that know one another. This kind of leads to this theory that for Stockholm Syndrome to exist, the hostage taker and the victims, the hostages, they really need to be strangers. There can't be a pre-existing relationship. And again, as I mentioned, the evidence seems to support that this makes sense, that strangers need to be involved for this syndrome to manifest. Another theory we see with Stockholm Syndrome is that Stockholm Syndrome doesn't really exist in the sense of identification with the aggressor or the oppressor, but rather it's simply fear. Fear keeps somebody compliant, not identification. The extreme fear elicited by a hostage situation gives rise to the development of what appears to be love for or an attachment to the perpetrator. And then, of course, having sympathy or empathy for that perpetrator's perspective. So it could be that the bond between the victim and the perpetrator is really the best way to ensure the victim's survival. And this, more or less, I think, makes sense. An abuser would be less violent towards someone who is affectionate toward them, at least in theory. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris, and I'm your host.
0: head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
1: So we see characteristics such as dependency, lack of initiative, the inability to act, decide, or think seem to be favorable to the hostage taker. So why would a hostage taker be more violent if they saw those characteristics? The tendency would be, of course, They would be less violent, and actually this is supported by the experiences of law enforcement. We know that law enforcement officials encourage the development of Stockholm Syndrome during hostage-taking incidents because they know statistically it will improve the chances that the hostages would survive, even though it comes with some other factors that aren't favorable. For example, the authorities can't really count on the hostages being cooperative during the incident if Stockholm Syndrome symptoms appear, and of course later on when trying to work with prosecutors to try to get a conviction, we know that if Stockholm Syndrome takes hold, the victims will be less likely to testify and be cooperative in general. Now another theory of Stockholm Syndrome is even more simplistic here. It's just this idea that a strong emotional bond develops between people who share life-threatening experiences, which of course we see in other situations even to a lesser degree. For example, the idea that a couple can go to a horror movie or some movie that's otherwise scary, and they can become more attached because of that experience. We see that actually happens. So it makes sense when everything's kind of ramped up to higher stakes, like something's really life-threatening, that that would increase the chance of some sort of bond forming. And I think this is really consistent with the definition we see of Stockholm Syndrome that's most popular, even though there's no consistent definition, we do see a low level of consensus around certain points that need to be present for Stockholm syndrome to exist. Now, these points would be that a person must be held in captivity and cannot escape, and they must become dependent on the hostage taker for their lives, right? So it's really a life threatening situation, and the captor has control over the basic needs. The next element is that the hostage endures isolation from other people, and really only has the captor's perspective during the whole crisis. And we see this. We see that captors try to keep information in the media, for example, away from hostages. So that's part of the isolation technique that they use. Another element that would be necessary for Stockholm syndrome would be that the hostage taker has threatened to kill the victim and has demonstrated that they have the means to do so. So the captive kind of judges that it's safer To align with the perpetrator as opposed to trying to resist them. And of course, potentially face being murdered. And the last element in this definition of Stockholm syndrome is really kind of the most important. It's considered the cornerstone. And this is that the captive sees the perpetrator as showing some degree of kindness. Even if it's a misinterpretation, even if the captive misinterprets a lack of abuse as being kind. And this is kind of understandable. In a hostage situation, nobody would think that the captor is going to be kind. So an absence of abuse could be misinterpreted as kindness in that high stress kind of situation that people would not be ready for. Again, it's a traumatic situation the whole way through. So misinterpretations would be pretty common. So that kind of covers Stockholm syndrome. What about its potential link over to intimate partner violence? Is it reasonable to take what we've learned about Stockholm syndrome and relate it to kind of domestic abuse situations. Well, there is some evidence that there is a connection here, and we see a few studies on this. There's one particular study that looked at the characteristics of women who were victims of spousal violence and who also exhibited signs of Stockholm syndrome. And some interesting characteristics were identified about those women. And about their partners. What this study found was that women in this situation, again, the victims of spousal violence where Stockholm syndrome symptoms seem to be present, these women showed a higher level of activation of early maladaptive schemas. So a schema is really the filter through which a person sees the world. It's how they perceive things. And a maladaptive schema is one where somebody perceives the circumstances in life, they perceive their situation in a way that doesn't help them. In terms of survival or to be productive. So we see these, again, particular maladaptive schemas, specifically schemas in the areas of rejection and disconnection, as well as impaired autonomy and performance. So when these schemas were at a level that was higher, we see more Stockholm syndrome symptoms. Some other interesting findings here we see that there was no effect in terms of education or economic status. Now, this is interesting because I think a number of people do believe that if somebody has like more education, they would be less likely to have Stockholm Syndrome symptoms, or if they were wealthier or poorer, they would have a lower probability of developing the symptoms, but there was no effect here at all for education or economic status. We also see that the higher the frequency of abuse, this seems to increase the risk of Stockholm Syndrome symptoms. Now, at first, this might not really seem like an interesting finding, but if we think about how Stockholm Syndrome is conceptualized, if kindness is a really important aspect, and we see that a higher frequency of abuse is more likely to result in the symptoms, that really doesn't seem to make sense. You would think that a lower frequency of abuse would be interpreted as more kind, and therefore more likely to lead to Stockholm Syndrome symptoms. But again, that wasn't the case here. Now, the last finding here that I'll mention deals with the characteristics of the partner, so the abuser. What we see here is there's more impulsivity and there's more difficulty expressing and managing emotions. And the most significant finding here was around anger. So I think this one more or less makes sense. This one seems to fit with our understanding of abuse and Stockholm Syndrome symptoms. So that's a summary of Stockholm Syndrome. Like I mentioned before, this is really controversial. I've met mental health clinicians who were very sure that this was a real thing and kind of use it regularly in clinical practice, relating it to domestic violence situations. I've met other mental health clinicians who believe this is just a myth, it's pseudoscience, it doesn't exist, and it kind of takes away from our understanding and conceptualization of domestic violence. So some view it as kind of helpful in understanding it, and some view it as kind of hurtful. It's interesting how we kind of look at Stockholm Syndrome and how it's related to domestic violence situations. As always, I hope you found this description of Stockholm Syndrome to be interesting.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breidegan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslonga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at ArsLonga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other ArsLonga podcasts, visit our website at ArsLonga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, Parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.